Hey everybody, this is Game Designers Workshop, RPPR's version. Uh, this is episode two, research. What have we learned about research this week, Ross? Uh, we learned that we should look up the title of the new series of podcasts we were doing before we, we name it that. Yes, uh, we are named after a game company that went out of business 17 years ago. So <laughs> let's hope luck isn't a real thing for Red Market. <laughs> All right. <laughs> So, research. Yeah. What's all that about? Um, so, this is in real time. Uh, that's our podcast shtick. Um, so, it is September, what's the day? Uh, 19th. September 19th. Um, 2013. 2013. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Shit, we're really going to have to start doing years. <laughs> <sighs> yeah. All right. Um, anyway, uh, so I realized that this isn't going to stop. So, I am not done with the research project. By any means, right? But I have been doing it since you know the concept came up, right? In our first episode, um, Gen Con was definitely research, yeah. Uh, and I got a lot done there. Um, but you know, I'm going to get contradictory information. Stuff's going to go in new directions. Uh, I can, you know, only stay awake for so long <laughs> to read things, uh, and, and there's you know stuff like that. Um, so like. For instance, I, I, I have novelistic sensibilities, but, you know, I am not a trained historian like, say, an Adam Scott-Glatzy or right. Kenneth Height, who are, in addition to doing copious amounts of research, already have, like, libraries worth of knowledge right. in their head. Kenneth Height's uh, uh, master's degree is actually in cartography, uh, <laughs> so uh, he is just a, a renaissance man. Um. Yes, and <laughs> I am not. <laughs> Fair I enough. I am a very limited and then, of course, there's the whole field of game design and game theory, which is, you know, mathematical. Uh, uh, okay, yeah. Um, so today we're going to kind of break it up into three parts because, um, like most people, when I thought I'm going to write a game and do research, I jumped into like the setting information research, and I still do that, and that's the fun part. But I realized that there's a whole bunch of stuff about making a full blown game that I don't know. Um, and uh, so we're going to talk about that uh, researching design in general. And then researching other games is just as important, if not more important, yeah. than, than researching your setting. Um, so uh, the first thing we're going to start off with is design stuff. So I did a lot of this at um, Gen Con. And the, the thing about this part for me is that I am approaching this from a hobby deficit. Um, so I talk, how long have you been playing role-playing games now? Uh, since grade school in one form or the other. So, so many, many. Give me a year. Uh, I actually don't remember what year I started. <laughs> uh, I know it was a grade school, but I can't remember if it was fourth grade, sixth grade. Uh, so, you know, over 20 years. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Most people are in the decade range. Like yeah. everybody I interviewed at Gen Con's like, well, again, that's, that's a self-selecting group. I mean, like, you know, the, it's very true. And I'm not saying everybody's like that, but like most game creators, I, yeah, I've game creators yeah. are just like, I played first edition D and D in Gary Gygax's yeah, house. <laughs> and I'm like, I started a couple years ago. <laughs> that's true. That's a good point. <laughs> um, 
I didn't. Yeah, I didn't, yeah. I started with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and other strangeness, uh, a Palladium game. So, <laughs> speaking of game design, uh, yeah. So, I am trying to educate myself on this subject as quickly as I can. Um, and a big resource for that is uh, Jason Pitt, author of Spark. Um, he put on a panel, and he does a full blown podcast of nothing but panels that he and Mark Truman and the people of the uh, Indie Game Developers Network do. Um, and it, it's that's very informative, and he gives everybody in the audience a DVD full of all these resources. And I'd already found a few myself, but it definitely helped out. And um, I have since uh, joined the Indie Game Developers Network, and I'm on their email list, and those guys are really great because that's a whole realm of RPGs I, I've never uh, even looked into before, uh, but I'll get to that later. So, uh, I'm coming at the hobby episode, and we don't really talk about this in our PBR. Right. Like, we meet together, like, when we play a game, we're not like, I am interested in the narrative mechanics of, like, uh, so, and we're also in the middle of the Midwest. Yeah. And while Springfield is lucky to have a lot of gamers, right? they're not, like, scene gamers. And I'm not saying that, like, well, I mean, there. Yeah, you, you basically you get people that are that are primarily hobbyists. They play for fun, and so they pick their 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 poison, their flavor, and they they stick with it. You know, whether it's Pathfinder or World of Darkness or what uh, they and they seldom most gamers uh, around here seldom stray outside of their um, their favorite game. So you don't get that variety. You sort of uh, and that's why a lot of would be game designers tend to make like just a knockoff of their favorite game. Yeah. So. Um, and uh, I, I've been noticing talking to these people on this server that that um, and talking to Tom when he's visiting his friends in Seattle a lot. Yeah. Like, on the coast, there's a very different aesthetic going on yeah. in a lot of those groups. It's just like, what's the new game? Tonight? Especially Seattle, because that's, again, sort yeah. of the, the the I would say the mecca. But again, that's where Wizards of the Coast came from. That's where Magic the Gathering came from. And uh, there's uh, a lot of other great games. And uh, so you have that sort of. <laughs> That's a cultural thing there, you know. Um, so, yeah, you have all that. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I'm, I'm trying to come up with my, you know, shore up my weak spots there. Sure. Um, so th- the first thing is I, I go out things from reading, and so I thought I'd approach some of these things. And then Ross can tell me if he's read anything about game design stuff mm-hmm. or anything else we discovered that's helped him in his previous games. Um, so the first thing I'm looking at is in the process of is this 273 page monster, um, called design patterns of successful role playing games Yeah, by Whitson, John Kirk, the third. Um, if you're a layman like myself, uh, a few weeks ago, uh, it is a cross discipline analysis of all role playing games. So it's like, all right, which role playing games are D one hundred? How do they do stats? How do they do this? And it, it names each mechanic and shows all the different games that it appears in and how it works. Um, and uh, it, that's really interesting and in, uh, for a person who's not very good at mechanics to just get a catalog of different. You know, like we we put cards on dice and we use Jenga towers and we, <laughs> yeah, you know, wad up our character sheets and see who can throw them the farthest to see who wins a conflict. Uh, all right, and that's like, an idea. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, uh, yeah. So it's it's like a catalog in that regard. It is pretty dry reading, though. Uh, there is an older book uh, that I actually that um, I remember getting at the library uh, years ago, and I think it was called Other Worlds or something like that. I can't remember the exact name, but it was like a early history and catalog of all role-playing games up to that point. 
And so it was written like, here's this RPG, here are the, the settle, uh, supplements for it. And then they had little excerpts from game designers talking about different game design topics. So even though like my early thing, uh, experience with role playing games is very limited, like Palladium Games, D&D, and then World of Darkness, I think, and with a little bit of Shadowrun, uh, I learned about other, other game systems through that book, uh, or I at least uh, was aware that games like Traveler existed, where you could die during character generation, which... Uh, <laughs> Um, which now that I now years later I understand that that just basically means you need to start over. You 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 tried to min max your guy too too much during character generation, so you screwed up. Start over. Yeah, uh, which is really what that meant. Um, so uh, yeah, they're 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 not. It doesn't talk so much. It's more just like a history. Here are all the books that have been out, come out so far. And but anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need that too because yeah. yet again hobby deficit. It's yeah, it's uh, I, it came out in the '90s, so I don't know if they've released a new edition of it. I'm sure you can find a used copy on Amazon. I'll, I'll look at it. I, I, I can't remember what the it's other worlds or something like that. Um, I'm sure. Well, I'm pretty sure this stops around late '90s and stuff like that. Oh so yeah, there's a lot of stuff that won't be in there. But yeah, that's the. I mean, I'm more familiar with more current games than I am. Stuff yeah, that came out in the '90s. Like I yeah. don't play World of Darkness, that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, so uh, there's also an indie game designer's guide to RPG design by uh, Nathan Paletta. Uh, that's a bit more abstract, as in you know, um, you know, you need to do this and then follow by this step, and here are some larger concerns. So it talks about big three game question or the power nineteen game questions. These kind of sort of guiding uh, writer workshops activities to try and yeah. narrow in on what your game's about. Um, and then I have also got uh, interested in the Guide to Small Publisher RPG Production by Kevin Crawford. Uh, that deals with more back-end stuff, I've noticed, like funding and layout. For, uh, the practical dummy, stuff. Uh, yeah. The practical stuff. Yeah. Um, so I haven't quite dug into that yet because I'm not at that yeah. phase yet. Um, One thing to keep in mind, though, is the sooner you do, at least you're aware of those like backing questions, um, the more it helps the product. More, I, the more I've learned is like the more you're aware of those sort of issues, the more you can plan around them. So, like certainly, um, you want to, you don't want to have to like go back and fix things because you didn't plan it at a certain point. So, uh, yeah, there's just the more you plan, the less you have to do in a lot of uh, in a lot of ways. So that's good. Uh, I will th- I will consider that. Then. Yeah. Um, so I also started listening because we're not the first people to do a podcast like this. Right. Not not even close. <laughs> um, our only real unique aspect is that I am dumb enough to do it in real time <laughs> and show everyone how late it is. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's our one selling point. <laughs> well, again, the tabletop RPGs that that's a relative term. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Jason Pitt, he's doing the RPG design panel cast. Um, he does occasionally do episodes where he is talking directly into the microphone, but most of the time is just him and Kenneth Height and other people from the network at every convention imaginable <laughs> doing all these um, panels about RPGs. And like they've done some really good ones. The one I attended, uh, which was How to Teach Yourself RPG Design, was really useful, and we recorded that. Yeah, And they also do another really good one is like the best games you've never played where it's all about, you know, hooking people up with really weird games they've never heard of before. I understand like maybe 20% of what they're talking about in any given time. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it gives you a good reading list. Um, and I also kind of enjoy Master Plan by Daniel Solis. Uh, and he's discussing his own game design there. 
Uh, he's kind of doing it retrospectively after you know he's like completed a game. Yeah. Um, but you know, a postmortem. Yes, there are you know benefits to that that we won't have. <laughs> Hindsight. <laughs> Hindsight. Yeah. Um, I've also been watching Emergent Play, which is an academic approach. I have looked everywhere on the channel. I can't find the guy's name. Uh, he's bald, and it's amazing that he doesn't trip. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, oh, why is that? You haven't explained the... the, the okay, break. it's a YouTube channel, yeah. uh, and uh, Emergent Play, he talks about, like, serious design topics. So he talks about, you know, the GNS framework versus the uh, total model framework and right. the magic circle in psychology, like, really academic subjects. But they're easy to digest, and he does them, like, three to five minutes... And he posts nearly every week, but every time he posts, he's wandering through the woods, like taking a selfie of his face. And I'm not sure how he doesn't like avoid tripping. Like sometimes there's snow on the ground, and it's just it just looks insanely dangerous, and I worry for him. So well, he's not running. I mean, he's just kind of like, he, he's moving at a brisk pace. Like it doesn't look like he's just ambling. Like I don't walk with something directly in front of my face. It's not safe. Like. I, so if you want suspense with your academic discussions of game design. Uh, well, you don't see the outtakes where he does trip. It's not like he uploads those. Like, oh, here's the one where I made myself look like a total jackass. Upload. I, I'm just amazed. All right. He's like some sort of RPG ninja. <laughs> Fair enough. He walks between the raindrops. He does. All right. While taking selfies. <laughs> um all right, so research. Uh, so you've been reading a lot uh, or digesting a lot of this material. What kind? Of, what have you come? Uh, what What has uh, embedded into your mind so far? Um, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> That's been very clear. Uh, what has embedded in me is that I I tend to I, I think I'm coming at it backwards from most people. Like most people. It, it seems that the emphasis seems to be on like how do you crowdfund your game and how do you right. th that kind of stuff. Whereas having you, yeah, uh, I, I've kind of got a better grasp on that stuff than I yeah. do like the history of role playing stuff. Whereas most people just kind of seem to we're getting a pretty to be a pretty old hobby, um, and most people kind of take that as for general uh, knowledge. So I, I found that kind of interesting. Um, but uh, other than that, I'm just trying to dig in and, and learn more about like mechanics that have existed before. Yeah, and seeing what I can steal. Yeah, abashedly steal. I mean, that's true because um, a lot of times you find out about interesting mechanics in uh, role playing games that in systems that you wouldn't normally think like if they're outside of your comfort zone. For like, for example, uh, 180s game is called Pendragon. Uh, which is about Arthurian myth. And it has very interesting rules for relationships and emotional mm -hmm. states. Uh, and that are, would be very in place in a modern narrative storytelling game right now. And that was, came out from the eighties. Uh, and so that's just one example, but yeah, there's a lot of these. Uh, yeah. So th what I've really learning from all the game design research, cause I, I find it interesting and it's helping me plan out like macro style stuff for ed markets is that I need to play and read more games. Um, and I, I worked on that. I bought a whole bunch of stuff at Gen Con yeah. and we did the wrap up of that. But, you know, I realized that that is a just drop in the bucket, like compared to stuff I should be reading. So, right. Well, start up Phoenix Command next week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, Phoenix Command. Windage for firearm rules. So, <laughs> exactly. You um, think we're joking, but we're not. No. 
Um, but what I am learning one thing is that it's much better to have people yeah. to help you walk through this stuff than to just go fishing and Google. Yeah. Like, like you can lead me towards more things. If I'm going to do guns in a game, I'm talking to Glancy. Like, yeah. I'm not going to go to a gun store and say, like, I want to make games with guns in it. Tell me what guns do. Yeah. Uh, I, I want someone who's already, like... Who writes with guns next like to Terry, his table? Uh, yeah, and I want him to, you know, lead me in the right direction and save me some time. Yeah, um, and uh, that's what I've been doing with setting research too and the academic stuff. So um, the games I think you can just fall into it internally if you can find like mentors or people who've done it before. Yeah, that is really the best bet. Right. Um, I mean, the one lesson that I've the, the single lesson that I've learned that seems to be universal regardless of what. Like whether you're going no more narrative, more like traditional or whatever you want to do with your game is that the single most important thing is to play test, play test, play test. Cause it's not going to, unless any game you can in, in theory can be perfect, but until you, you put it in front of people and see how they react and then tweak it based on that, it's not going to, you know, work. So, uh, play test works. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so the, that's the other, that's the next part. You need to do yeah. other games research. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, like, post-apocalypse game, so original, Caleb. Like, <laughs> so I need to look at other stuff that's done that before. So, um, you know, we've played a close phase. Uh, games like Stalker. Yeah. There's there's a serious element in Red Markets of, like, there is a forbidden zone, but you are the person who can go into the forbidden zone. Right. Um, so that's kind of inheriting, like, a tradition in that regard. Um, I really like, I just read Unknown Armies because yet again, I missed the 90s. Yeah. Um, and I was just astounded by it. Uh, and I really like the idea of not just switching D10s roles, like reversing them, but like wiggling them. Yeah. And the sanity mechanics. So I'm kind of obsessed with like building something like that into Red The sanity mechanic is pretty much, uh, for Unknown Armies, is probably one of the, the high water marks in game design uh, to emulate that part in any game, even, yes. even today. Like, I haven't seen anything. Like, uh, there's a free one roll engine game nemesis that had just they just copy it it's basically wild talents with that but you're yeah. normal people and it that yeah well i don't want to lift it obviously yeah. but i would like to adapt something like that specifically yeah. to zombie zombie genre stuff yeah um there's all flesh must be eaten which is like the hackable zombie game yeah. like you can make it whatever setting you want it to um my game's not really about Zombies so much as about economics on the fringe, so I, I don't feel like I could set it there because there's not great rules for economics in All Flesh. No, could be eaten. Uh, could be eaten, possibly. All Flesh must be must be eaten. Yeah. Must uh, <laughs> must. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and then there's also games like Outbreak, which is just if you've seen that, it's like this yeah. gigantic fifty foot thick book, <laughs> and care, and that is like pure simulation. It's like character creation and Outbreak. You go online and you answer questions about yourself, and it turns it into a character sheet. Yeah, and like they, your percentage rolls for everything in Outbreak are based on your actual percentage to succeed in like making a fire or hitting a headshot and stuff like that. It's all about like dying realistically. So, <laughs> like that's more simulationist than I'm going for. But like it's kind of interesting to see them, you know, go that far and you know talk about going far into research. You know, oh yeah, yeah, finding a survivalist and asking them that. Yeah. Um, but like, yeah, I can only read so fast and all I can, I can only convince you guys to try out so many new games. Like right. people have already told me I'm making an apocalypse world heartbreaker. Yeah. 
I would love to read Apocalypse World if I could buy a copy. And yeah. the guy said, I might give it to you maybe sometime. Thanks for the money. <laughs> Which is not exactly a guarantee. Well, the PDF you can get like reliably through Drive Through RPG because they use an automated system. Yeah, and, yeah. So I just don't like reading PDFs. Yeah, no, that, that's that's a fair concern. Um, people told me I need to look at GURPS zombies. People told me I need to look at Savage Worlds, which I have read, but like I, I'm trying as much as I can, but I don't want to put like. Well, I mean, and there's also the thing. At a certain point, you just kind of like you're never gonna. That's that's a, a rabbit hole you'll, that never ends. Like you, you can you can. There are literally more games than you can ever play. Like, yeah. So at a certain point, you have to stop <laughs> and just fucking do it. So, mm-hmm. uh, but what what is that threshold for you? Uh, I'm getting there. All right. Uh, but I, I I plan to keep on reading the stuff, but I, I don't know how many we're gonna be able to play and. Right. Uh, you sent me the link a while ago. Who was that guy who said that there's no such thing? You should never save your ideas. Like whatever uh, you're working on, you should dump every great idea. I think it was Patton Oswalt. Like he he basically said, don't don't hoard your best material. Just throw it out there. Like and then he, come up because that's stuff. that was he was describing. Or no, it was Louis C.K. He was uh, describing how he went from being a mediocre stand-up comic to being a good one by not hoarding his best material. But the best thing you could think of, he threw it out there, and then because you you you're not gonna. If you save that one good idea, if you use that good idea, you'll come up with another good idea. But yeah. if you save that one good idea, you're just stuck on that. So it's, you know. Yeah, and that's the thing. I don't want Red Markets to take 18 years yeah. um, to get it perfect. I right. want it to be really good, and I want it to be worthwhile, but I don't want to, like, not I mean, that is kind of one of the, I think one of the, the characteristics of you see a lot of these fantasy heartbreaker RPGs is that they spin, like, oh, this RPG was 10 years in the making. It's like, Jesus Christ, what? Why? <laughs> like, yeah. it's... Like I literally like um, I saw one post-apocalyptic horror RPG that uh, is called Yellow Dawn, and I'm tempted to get at least the PDF to read through it. It's like a 300-page thing that's post-apocalyptic, but it's about Carcosa or Haster causing this virus, and there's it's there's zombies in it, and there's ref pockets of high-tech civilization left but they say, oh, this has been based on a 10-year campaign and blah blah blah, and I'm just like, Jesus, you know, that's a lot. A long time to make one game. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. And, you know, I mean, if, if that works, it's great. I just, you know, I just don't. Kenneth Hyde does not take 10 years to make a game. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Even though he's researching, like. Yeah. The, I, like, when Kenneth Hyde or Adam Scott Glancy write a game, I kind of believe it actually happened, and they just found <laughs> hidden records somewhere. <laughs> like, they went to Miskatonic, it was yeah. down beneath the snacks. Yeah. And like, oh, no, that actually happened. Like, <laughs> uh, and that's amazing, but I'm not, I'm not, A, not capable of that. Yeah. And then, uh, B, too lazy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there is, yeah, there is a certain level of, like, holy shit like there's people have different standards of like craftsmanship or like perfectionism and you know it is for me i feel like there's a certain point where yeah you can go from like a 90 percent to a 95 percent, but that takes as much work to get from zero percent to 90 percent. you know what i mean diminishing yeah. returns and like some authors are just mutants and they can get to that 95 percent while taking long but yeah anyway yeah so i mean i am looking at it it's not like i'm being lax necessarily yeah uh, by most people's standards, and I think it will be a good game. I hope at least, but um, you know, I, I am going to have to make peace with the fact that I have not played every game. Like, right. I have. There are games I don't even have available to me. Like, like I mean, we go to meta games. It's not like there's much browsing selection. I can get Pathfinder or Pathfinder or. Well, there's still there. Well, like, 
they have a little better selection than that. But, but yeah, I mean, it's it, not. It is it's weird. not like I'm in Boston or something at right. like some game. Well, I mean, yeah, and you can. I mean, you can order it online, but then that's a more. Like, then I spent money on something I never even flipped through. Yeah, yeah. I may or may not like it. Right. And I don't have a job. Yeah, so. <laughs> that is uh, problematic. Uh, and again, we're we're for the existing games we have. It'll take us a year to get through what we oh have. Oh my god! Yeah. yeah, if if not more. Yeah. Right? Uh, so just yeah, you got to cap that at some point, even though you need to make the effort. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but now the fun stuff setting. So not the, the actual fun stuff to research. Yeah. Okay. Well, actually, the thing about researching game uh, uh, design, like in terms of like what. When you now that you've been looking through these games, at least reading them and whatever, playing through them, like what do you look for in a game that you like? How do you cr- mentally critique games when you're going through them? Like, have you figured out a process of like, oh, I like that mechanic or I don't like that? Like, what are they? What are they doing well? What what would I have done different? Because that's kind of what I do, and a lot of times when I read through things, I would have, you know, it's not just necessarily the mechanics, or but sometimes it's the presentation or the layout. Like, do role playing games. A lot of them put the setting material first, then the rules, but some of them do it the other way around. Uh, I mean, but that's for me. Like, that's what kind of what I... uh, um, uh, And different games draw different things. Like, I look at one game and just focus on one area on it. You know, like, oh, these are really cool example characters. This is a really good adventure. And then I skip all the fucking rules, Mm -hmm. like Dark Heresy, the Warhammer 40K RPGs. I just kind of like, yeah, whatever. Uh, But (laughs) there's setting material in the background and the adventures. That's really cool. So, uh, I don't know what... Well, I mean, I think it's a confidence thing, maybe, that like critique-wise. But I think I've gotten to where when I read an RPG book, I try and assess why they did certain things. Like, well, they want you to start playing faster. So that's why character creation is up before all the setting stuff. Um, Whereas in another game, I'm like, well, the setting's really evocative, so that's why they put the setting first, so you can have that information in your mind as you do character creation. So I try and make like explanations and know understand why they did things, so that when I think of my game... I can like make informed decisions in the same way. Yeah. Um, but I'm not really at the level where I'm like, I wouldn't have done it that way. And like, especially with layout, like if I can read it, good job. <laughs> like, you know, I'm really bad at stuff, but then you like, you talk to people like Adam jury or like professional graphic designers. And it's just yeah. like, they pick the wrong. Font the current wrong. Like, yeah. The current commit seppuku and shame. <laughs> I like, think Adam's a little too polite. To <laughs> yeah. yeah. So like, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And to be fair, you haven't read any of the new world of darkness books. Uh, nor, <laughs> because they fucking use cursive fonts for a lot of the material in that. that okay, that's pretty awful. Exactly. I, I would recognize that. On confusing backgrounds, so you can't even look, like, it's just, uh, I'll show you after the podcast, but it's just, it's just. Yeah, but at the same time, like, that's not very discerning eye. Like, yeah. you wouldn't want me to be your paramedic if you were on fire. I'm like, that looks like you're hurt. <laughs> like, I mean, like, I can tell if it's like. An really atrocity against egregious. taste, All right. but I, I, beyond that, I, I, I'm not. Are there any particular insights that you like? You've already know uh, you've changed or you've thought of like looked at other games. Like I need Red Market to do this or to not do this or something like that. Um, talking about game economies, yeah. Um, I need to. Well, with Red Markets, game economies talking about now, which is like really your your resource management for your character. Yeah. And in a lot of games currently I've discovered that the move was away from physical stuff where that was all like, I need so much gold to buy the Vorpal sword. Yeah. And in previous, and it's really become about, um, meta fictional economies like my moxie points or my clue spins or my, this or my, you know, all my relationship points like narrative control. Yeah. 
And I've realized in red markets, I need two game economies and I need them to be opposed. Like, so I really need, I really like those kind of metafictional, like I can spend a point to re-roll, spend a point to do what I want to do, spend a point to stay sane, spend a point, you know, like kind of managing your character Mm -hmm. in in terms of like numbers. Right. And I like that system and and that's kind of what I've been raised on in my three years of playing. But at the same time, I want red markets to have a system where like I have a gun now. I yeah. need 50 credits to keep the gun, like, because yeah. it needs oil and Bullets. ammo yeah. and repairs. Um, it's going to be heavier than that. Like, if I spend time, you know, working to get the gun, that's time I haven't spent Skyping with my family in the refugee camp. That's time I haven't spent, uh, you know, not being around horrible zombies. Uh, so, like, I, I really, I'm, in talking about game economies, I kind of want to bring back the gear-based economy, like the actual economy of a game. Sure. uh, And really focus on that, and I kind of want to make it in contest in some... It's more like a Shadowrun or even Eclipse Phase, like in terms of like you can get a lot of different types of gear. Yeah, and I I kind of want to make it in contest and like with your survival as a person, like your control Mm -hmm. of your character. Now, yeah, I mean, and that's very good to have like the personal versus the uh, financial, like that's a classic dilemma do i skype with a family do i get the gun yeah um but yeah do i pay for the skyping or do i pay for the gun Mm -hmm. um but what will happen is players will some players would be like well uh, my character is just all he's just an 80s capitalist that's how he gets emotionally off is through that so the way is instead of leading a two-way conflict make it a three-way conflict between like your character's background his emotional state the money and then his sanity if your character just keeps sacrificing family and emotion oh no no the sanity is linked to the economy on the on the character okay so like i'm thinking that instead of insanity because like i don't want to be offensive yeah, and we're getting to like way out there mechanics talking about. Right, right. I don't want to like somebody get fucking schizophrenia because they saw something nasty. No, that's yeah. not how that shit works. Right. Um, like so, um, I'm thinking of making the sanity mechanic. You know, you do go insane, you do lose control of your character. It does have serious, perhaps permanent implications for your character. But I'm I'm not going to express that insanity in terms of like medical diagnosis. I'm going to express it in terms of zombie tropes. Like if you go too far in the insanity scale, you become that motherfucker in the party <laughs> in a zombie movie. Like you think you see your dead wife and you open the door, or you start okay. keeping them as pets, or right. you start killing humans like they're zombies. Like you you commit atrocities, and then you're like then that gets it out of your system for a little bit. But each one you get, you slide further down. Like you become less of a survivor and more part of the environment until eventually, like you're the you're the guy who proves the old zombie cliche: the humans are the real monsters. Like, right. and then you're then you're an NPC. Like, um, um, so yeah, that's my plan. Is like you, your personal right. economy keeps you from going insane. Well, it's just, if the players get to choose what their personal economy is based on, some will be like, it's based on being a murder hobo. So, like, <laughs> yeah, I understand that. Yeah. yeah. So that was that's the only concern. All right. So, anyways, uh, well, that's good that you you figure that kind of. Uh, that's, so, that's so that's what I look at when yeah. I read now, like game economies and how those work. Sure. And then mechanics that are gonna. Um, I am kind of like enamored with the gamist narrative simulationist model. Yeah. Even though it's pretty outdated, I think it's a good way to describe things. So right. I look for mechanics that. Um, would either be narrative or simulationist because right. that's really my two opposed. You know, 
Um, economy of character, economy of stuff. No, actually, I do have something about game design and research uh, for Base Raiders, since that's oh, okay. finally fucking done. <laughs> uh, when I started planning it, um, my I always knew from the beginning that I wasn't going to design my own system because uh, a superhero system is not Ugh. yeah not an easy thing to tackle, uh, especially because I wanted something where players could design their own powers. So. Yeah. And so the choice was using, um, I asked to use Wild Talents, but Arc Dream never got back to me on that. And I didn't want to make it a Wild Talent setting. I wanted it to be a standalone game. Yeah. Uh, because standalone games sell, <laughs> just on an economic reason, they do better than uh, settings. Because you, you only need the one book instead of two. And so my choice really became between Mutants and Masterminds, which uh, has an open, kind of an open license, so you can use that. Uh, well, even that would it would have been a setting. So uh, I found, so I was kind of limited into Strange Fate, mm-hmm. uh, which was used in the Kerberos Club uh, originally, but it's OGL, so I yeah. could copy all the rules for that. But the, the thing with that is um, later on, while I was designing it, Fate Core came out. And Fate, like, hey, why don't you update it for Fate Core? And I looked at it, and they don't have any real system in Fate Core, uh, a complex, robust superpower creation system. Like, they have stunts, but they just, like, make it up. Like, yeah, it's, superpowers are aspects. And, yeah. And well, almost, it's almost entirely narrative. It's like. Yeah, it's it's a very well. Uh, it's a very limited thing, and it's not like for this. I wanted very pre- precise mechanical effects for like because part of the game isn't just like you start with the whole point of the game is you're going into these places finding power sources like super yeah. soldier drugs, and so inevitably some player would be like, I drink the magic potion, I dr- I inject myself with the super soldier drug, but you're a wizard. Well, what happened? I want to be a buff wizard. I want to be a muscle wizard. <laughs> yeah. uh, so what happens when that when that goes on? So. Um, I had to come up with a rule, and I didn't think Fate Core could do that. Yeah. So, like, that was a decision I had to make, and I know some people are going to be like, they would love, because Fate Core does do a lot of things that are very well, and I think in a lot of ways it is streamlined, but I don't like how they did the powers, uh, at least so far. I'm sure they'll probably have a more robust system come out eventually but uh but it's you know it's it's a decision so like i had to make decisions not to create my own system and then to find the right one for base raiders and so that was a big thing um yeah and uh, i kind of went through the same thing with red markets because i was considering uh the gumshoe system because it's yeah. something to come open license because i really love the way they do character economies like yeah you spend points to control narrative and get stuff that you need but you want to marshal that and I really thought about doing it in that for a while, but um, even with Nice Black Asians and the and the uh, the the proof that you can kind of make combat interesting in Gumshoe and not yeah. just the investigative stuff, yeah, yeah definitely. Uh, I think I would have to add all new rules to the economy side of things. So then you've got like these rules that you can kind of tell they weren't originally in Gumshoe for Nice Black Agents, even though I like the rules and they work. Right to me, they feel as if Yes, they made this afterwards. Even though it's the first Gumshoe game I ever played, I could tell they did these after Gumshoe was around. Yeah. And I don't want to staple another thing on top of that for Gumshoe to carry. Yeah. And I think I, I like games with like intrinsic roles. Like you roll D100s or you get a match or you don't. Like intrinsic mechanics are really appealing and I want to try that. Okay. If I can. That's a, that, I mean, that's a fair decision. I, yeah. Whenever the Gumshoe goes OGL, I'll probably create a standalone game for that. I, I'm but, not yeah. saying it couldn't work. Like, in, but I'm not going to be. The focus isn't going to be on economy. It's going to yeah. be on horror. So uh, horror, horror, like you know. And they're very good at that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, I mean, there's going to be horror in my game, but yeah, it's going to be economic horror. Yeah, <laughs> the horrors of like the marketplace. Life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, so ba- so that was enough. Uh, sorry yeah. about that little tangent. So no setting fine. setting research. Um, well, I split it up into the two things I want the games to do. So I have like narrativist research, mm-hmm. and then I've got um, simulationist research. So things to make the story good and things to make it seem realistic. Um, narratives wise, we've already talked about some of that. So like the Return Man and Dust and Decay, right? Um, zombie stories. Yeah, zombie stories. Feed, which is about uh, another young adult novel series, which is about the children right. of parents who've survived a zombie apocalypse and they were journalists during it. So that's kind of cool. Um, I'm reading the Altered Carbon series, Woken Furies, the third book, um, where you know. The ultimate murder hobo, Takeshi Kovacs, uh, goes to this continent that's been abandoned to rogue AI war machines, and they get bounties on killing them to eventually clear the continent one day. And that's just really kind of the aesthetic that all that. But at this point, like, I've read enough of that stuff, and it's such a flood of material. Oh, yeah. It's a huge genre. Yeah. That um, at this point, I'm really just looking at, like, nomenclature. And so I'm not, like, stepping on somebody's property. Right. And because yeah, game designers workshop. Um, and uh, well, yeah, if you call your zombies walkers, and then it's like, oh god, you're yeah. walking dead. Uh, that's yeah, exactly. Job. And which I'm just really, it's really just playing pronoun shuffle, but yeah, it is kind of important, and I don't yeah. know why. But uh, and I'm also looking for you know ways to distinguish myself, and uh, y- you know inspiration, th- things of that nature. Right. Um, so we, we've already talked about that. The simulation and stuff is more interesting because. I'm kind of making it a near future setting, so I'm trying to look at like trending real day, everyday topics. Stuff that'll be here in ten years. Yeah, our R is going on like at the cutting edge right now, and and I'm talking about and that. So uh, the simulation stuff, I'm looking at stuff like Vice just did an article about near term extinctionists who are who are uh, climate change scientists that argue that we don't have as much time as we think we do. Is like we're looking at twenty years before humanity goes extinct. From like massive climate change, like it's not going to be our grandchildren. Like you're going to live to see it, um, and they make some kind of scary arguments. Yeah. So um, I was, I don't know if I buy into that, but like, you know, I kind of equate it, the zombies and red markets to the weather. You know, they're just another threat. Yeah. And like, you know, flash floods or droughts or right tornadoes and shit is pretty bad when you're you know living in a tent on top of a compound. <laughs> um, so I'm looking at that kind of stuff, uh, the climate change things. Um, a lot of Charles Strauss articles because he's brilliant. Like uh, he's got a blog post called "Insufficient Data," which is all about how many people you need to keep alive to keep society running. Yeah. Um, so like I can't kill everybody. Like <laughs> bare minimum, I need at least a billion people to keep the modern day. Like, yeah. Probably more than that. Uh, and to, to, for those of you who are wondering why, it's more because uh, in order to maintain a technological society, you need a lot of different technicians of different types. Yeah, right? it's specialization. You need railroad engineers, but you also need satellite technicians, yes. and you need administrators, and you need agricultural. So you need a, and the more people, more specialties you need, you need people to infrastructure for them, house, you know, housing, nurses, or medical care, and just on schools for them. Yeah, like a mason can build a wall or a bridge or yeah. a building, but he can't wire your house Yeah, and also fix your boo-boo right. and all that kind of stuff. You, so with that level of specialization, specialization, it requires far more education 
which requires a leisure class that doesn't do all that brute manual labor, which is in turn more specialized. And it just gets on and on and on if you're going to have like a modern society. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that's going to help me like not kill everybody, but kill enough people to make the setting interesting. Right. Uh, I'm a horrible person. I should talk about it. Those. <laughs> I need to keep um, at least a billion alive. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Um, Junkyard Planet, which is a book by Adam Miller. It's about the global trash trade. Yeah. Uh, so people who are already professional scavengers. Oh, did, uh, did I send you that, or was uh, I've I've got I've read that in okay. school. Um, but yeah, that's good. Um, I need to read the World he Without has a blog, Us. Yeah. Which is a really well researched book about. Which was it? World Without Us was a really okay. well researched book about what happens when humans disappear. Yeah. So, you know, the alarming speed at which infrastructure collapses without constant maintenance, like houses have like two years, three years max, like, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, there's this picture called World of Equal Dis- Districts that's on Tumblr now. That, oh, yeah. That, yeah, that divides the world map into districts based on roughly equal population. And that's really interesting to see, like, where people are living. Like, you look in China, there's like. It's like nested dolls, just <laughs> district within district within district. And then you look at other, like, and then the Sahara is, like, just this massive di- district that's bigger than Egypt. Um, so that's kind of good for, like, placing different places. I've already made a map, by the way, of the world. Nice. Um, and then what else? Uh, Death, Taxes, and Zombies by Adam Chortero, which is an economics paper about how, what a zombie apocalypse or near zombie apocalypse would do for taxes. Can you tax? Right are those people dead? Yeah. Are those people dead? Do you get their estate tax? Do you, do they count it on the census? Like all these really like interesting economic kind of stuff. Um, then there's also uh, the University of Ottawa did the mathematical model of a zombie outbreak. Yeah. Um, so that that's pretty good. In- have you read uh, the theories of international politics and zombies? I have not. I need to look into that. Uh, I have a copy of that. I actually read that. I reviewed that on the podcast uh, some months ago. It actually really goes into a lot of those kind of uh, practical issues, like what happens in zombie politics. How do how do governments handle that? And See, this research stuff doesn't stop. Yeah, yeah. More to read. Now. <laughs> Fucking thanks, Ross. No, it, well, it's, th- it's not a very it's not a very long book. Okay. So, um, and then otherwise, like on the side of like being a player character, uh, I read this article. Um, by Charles Davis called Steal This Article, mm-hmm. talking about economic disparity. And he makes an ethical argument that stealing is the moral action. Uh, so, like, it's like sort of like extreme revolutionary rhetoric, like, make it personal. It's not business. Like, you need to, you, you need to steal because they're killing you. It's just yeah. slow. Um, and that seems like a pretty good aesthetic for a guy left behind in a, in a zombie apocalypse. Oh, yeah. Um, and then I also read stuff about the guy who runs – this Forbes did this really awesome article about the guy who runs Silk War Road. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is like deliver drugs to the mail, which just to me is just fucking insane. Like why would you do that? Like I just never in my mind thought that would he, be – It works though. It fucking works too. And like – and that's kind of the idea of the red market. Like that's the network that they would yeah. have set up. You know, illegal – dark nets that are yeah, untraceable. Yeah, for those of you who aren't familiar, the Silk Road is uh, an online eBay for contraband. Uh, it used to have firearms. They they split that off. There's a separate site now for firearms, but you get mostly drugs. Uh, in order to access it, though, you have to use something called the Tor Anonymous Proxy, uh, which is basically you connect to this anonymous website, and it's everything's encrypted, and then basically it's untraceable. 
Um, yeah, they convert your the Tor convert converts your funds into bitcoins. Yeah, and then the bitcoins are distributed through God knows how many proxies. Yeah, and then the bitcoins can be used on Silk Road to just buy flat out narcotics. And I'm not talking like weed. I'm talking like meth, mm-hmm. like serious motherfucking heroin. Like they vacuum seal it so it's not usable through detectable by dogs, and then disguise it, and they just mail it to your door, making it a huge 20-year federal prison term. Like, just insane to do that. I'm not advocating it, but, like, that is a real-world, like, underground global conspiracy that is operating in just flagrant defiance of every, almost every Western uh, security and law enforcement organization. So, like, I mean, you know, if I'm doing that in a near apocalypse scenario, like, it's just like in terms of adding realism into it, right? You the know, technology I, would be there. Yeah, and um, uh, I actually used uh, uh, drew inspiration for that for Base Raiders too, where I created my own knockoff called Agora, which was like the online illegal eBay for superpowers. <laughs> yeah, and because uh, it's and there's there are knockoff sites already. There's like, oh, Silk Road's old. Go use ours. Uh, I can't remember what it's called, but there's already uh, several knockoffs. And uh, and it's not just that. There's also, like, hacking tools. Like, here, plug this USB into a computer. You can, can control it. Spy on your family. You know, shit like that. So all kinds of fun, illegal things. Well, yeah, that. And then, um, I yeah, I'm looking at all the kind of hacker stuff, too. Like, people are hacking Google Glass already yeah. to uh, do all that kind of stuff. Yeah, in 10 years, those those things are going to be common. Yeah, altered, alternate reality games that result from that. Yeah. Like, um, you know, uh, ubiquitous Wi-Fi, which Google's already experimenting with using uh, weather balloons. So you just basically just put a massive fucking Wi-Fi hub up into the stratosphere and let it float around up there for 100 years. Like, that requires very little maintenance on the ground, um, which would be another reason how I establish, you know, how why you get Wi-Fi in the wasteland. Um, and yeah, there's new protocols, too, like one called WiMAX or something like that that has a longer range, so yeah. you could have, like, a connect to someplace 30 miles away or in the stratosphere or something like that. Uh, and I'm looking at other economic models because I want, like, if you're left behind by whatever country abandon you, yeah, you know, why not come up with your own economy? So yeah. I want people to like deal with like, okay, these are anarcho socialists, not the capitalists we usually right. deal with. How are we going to make a score off these people? Um, so I'm looking at stuff like uh, unconditional basic income, which was a term I wasn't familiar with before, which is the idea that it's kind of like a reputation based economy. Everyone gets the bare minimum for shelter, food and medical needs. Like that is just, everyone gets it. Like if you're unemployed, you get that. So there's no such thing as homeless people. There's no such thing as that. And your job is, like, whatever you do to supplement that income because you want a game system or something. So, like, instead of working a full-time job, the kind of old economy model of, like, I work at the company 30 years, they take care of me, it kind of deals more with the fact that everybody works part-time with no benefits or anything like that. So I was kind of thinking of adding that kind of stuff in there economically. And then I've just been talking to people. I've interviewed Two economists at the local university, uh, two a geographer or cartographer. Um, the geographers and cartographers helped me with like fortified fortifiable borders in the world that could possibly be defended. So the the red markets map is primarily around rivers, like uh, you know Mississippi and then the Parana and the Amazon, the Tigris and the Euphrates. That makes sense. Yeah. Suez Canal, like. Like uh, it's that kind of stuff, and that that maybe came that was pretty evocative. I came up with lots of ideas based on drawing the map that way. 
Um, and then the economics guy talked to me that like, I need to focus on microeconomics in the game because you can't simulate macroeconomics. No one has ever done that before. <laughs> Economists can't do that between like currency exchange and credit. <laughs> so um, I'm going to stick pretty closely to like basic economics, like the supply and demand curve. You just make some random charts. You probably get it be as accurate as I. <laughs> the economy is down. <laughs> well, also, like, I, I want it to be, like, real uh, economics with, like, immediate impact. I don't want anybody to be, like, getting into quantitative easing yeah. in the zombie markets. <laughs> like, so... Um, there is a, re- a plus three recession going on. Fuck. <laughs> Damn. Uh, I crit failed that. <laughs> uh, yeah, and nobody has that much agency either. Like, yeah. so uh, sticking to the macroeconomics. And then I've got interviews set up with um, a population expert and a city planner um, because, oh, there's this short video. I can't remember what it's called, but the whole thing is this guy is a specialist who goes when there's zombie outbreaks in a world after zombie outbreaks. Yeah. And everyone lives in these apartment blocks that have automatic sensors for the thing, and it locks it down, and there's a way to flood the rooms, which are made of pure concrete with napalm, and just burn it out. Oh, I've seen that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, like, so, like, I'm really interested in, like, making this. And there's, like, somebody there who, like, the, the story is, like. The uh, guy's not infected, but his wife is. Yeah, and he's and trapped he, in there. he wants to get the door closed to his kid's room. Yeah. So that the kid doesn't get baked by the napalm. Right. And, like, it's, like, a really intense short film. Yeah. But, I'm like looking at the perspective of like the safe zone would be really interesting if I could include setting information about and like how the government is making anti-zombie architecture now. Right. Like, and that's like one of the jobs that straight PCs do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like making apartment blocks full of napalm and shit like that. There's actually a interesting book that I have. Um, you might, you, if you want to look through it, uh, it's called cities under siege. Uh, and it talks about how architecture and city and urban planning has changed ever since the war on terror has begun. Like, yeah, uh, there's a lot, what they call reverse colonialism in that where, uh, we like, we go out to Afghanistan and we go out to Iraq and we go to these places. And we think there's no cost to it to, to us at least. So the average voters like, yeah, go to war. Why not? Who cares? You know, kill, kill the Taliban, kill those terrorists. But what happens is the militaries and the defense contractors go out there and they start using drones. They start using all these tactics to like uh, green zones and cordons and all this other stuff to pacify and control the occupation. And they develop these new technologies, these new techniques. And they're like, hey, this stuff is really useful. Let's use I it in London. Let's use the it Olympics. Uh, at the Olympics. <laughs> uh, the G8 protests. So that's why we're starting to get... Is, so there is a cost for us to go out to Afghanistan, to yeah. us as people, because we start getting the government and the different con- contractors like, hey, we can use these techniques here. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a testing ground for stuff to use to control... People. Yeah, everyone. Not just the the people in the terrorist countries, yeah, you know, as the voter would think. So <laughs> um and so that goes into a lot of these specific theories and strategies and stuff like that. So I'm sure the in a zombie world it would be that on steroids. It yeah. would be uh, even more so. But that would be the starting point for that. Um yeah, I'm gonna do stuff like that. And then uh, there's a book I read called Postmortal, mm-hmm. which is about like, you know, hitting peak like everyone beats death and kind of stuff like that. But near the end of the book, they hit peak oil. Yeah. And so there are these like car cities of people who just ran out of gas. It's like Hoovervilles on crack that stretch forever. So like, I mean, you can see that a little bit in those, those like 10 day, uh, yeah. Chinese, uh, Chinese, uh, yeah. Traffic traffic jams, traffic jams where people like where they have to just make 
like make do with where they stopped. Yeah. And so like those are going to be like the primary refugee camps where like you get a lot of your underground business. Yeah. And it like if you're a smuggler, like they need you water. Do. Do you, Step into my office. Yeah. The, the yeah. Ford Explorer exactly, that's been like, there for five and years. And can you get water to this camp of yeah thousands of people uh, without getting shot by people on the border? Like so. Um, I'm looking at that, and then I also need. To, I'm thinking about talking to a biologist, but I, I don't know about that because I've made some decisions about how I want my zombie virus to work. But at the same time, like there are people who have done that better than me. Like the, sure. the lady who did feed is like she called the CDC for like yeah. weeks until she got like she made some weird Marburg strange yeah. that's like eerily kind of freaky plausible. There's something in Night Black Asian about the Marburg strain as well. So yeah, uh, yeah. Um, and then there's you know uh, this there's the paper online about how an actual zombie virus might work yeah. uh, without actually raising dead flesh and things like that. So I, I do want it to be somewhat supernatural. Uh, but I, I, I do want to paint the plausibility sheen on it. So sure. I, I don't know if I'm going to do that or not. But. Yeah. I mean, uh, something with it seems more it, it, it helps the atmosphere because if you do something that's blatantly supernatural, they're demons, you know, dead bodies possessed by demons or something like that. Now I a need lot. a magic system. Yeah. Well, you, well, yeah. a magic system or it's just a lot of people like, oh, that's not as even though they're both as opposed to some virus that endlessly feeds and reanimates a dead person without ever needing fuel is just as fantastic yeah. as fucking demons. Yeah. Uh, some people find the virus more plausible, you know? So it's just the expectations of the zombie audience, you know? Yeah. And like, I thought about making hackable zombies, but like the thing with an economic setting is that I'm going to guess that most gamers aren't like intrinsically interested in that. Yeah. Necessarily. Right. And I really think that it'd be helpful to have a richly detailed setting that's evocative and gives right. people ideas about how they can do within that setting. There are there are already a number of toolkit systems out and there. And there's a number of toolkit systems yeah. out there, um, which, you know, I, I don't really want to do. Like, they do it well. Like, like the well, make your own zombie is great in All Flesh Must Be Eaten. Right. And it, the make your own vampire is good in NBA. And the make your own setting is great in Apocalypse World. And I want to do a game that has a setting and has zombies, but you make your own business, right? Like so, because that's that that's the that's the, the, focus the premise of, the of your game. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is also if you if you make a toolkit zombie, there's a lot of stuff you can't you can't nail down for the setting. You know so exactly. Yeah. Like if they have fucking wings, like, so much for the rivers. Yeah, like, watching, exactly. Yeah, like uh, or if they're yeah if they the uh, not only the security procedures the business would change. So like if they're uh, if they they're still intelligent, the whole thing about like tracking down dead grandma and putting her, you know, uh, dead would, doesn't make as much sense. Why don't they enslave the zombies because they're still able to do work or whatever? Yeah, or if you have the zombies and you make your own setting, like the basic premise of Red Marcus is that self sufficiency is a myth. Like, yeah. it never happened. It would never was. Like, yeah. no one was ever completely isolated in an island living. You yeah. Know, like people still need stuff and <laughs> that they can't do on their and own. And if you and if somebody makes a setting where like they just wipe out everybody and go full post apoc and I've got these game economies in there that are just like you're going to slowly die. Yeah. That's not gonna be fun for anybody. Cause yeah. like, you know, so what do you mean? I got everything. Well, vitamin deficiency. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. Like, you have scurvy. Yeah. Good job. <laughs> yeah, congrats. Yeah. So things like that. Yeah. Um I mean 
And that's I mean that and you kind of need that because you're you're sort of taking like you're going in the deep end of games like because a lot of these like narrative storytelling games are just like a thin little thing like here's the premise here's the mechanics that's it it's a yeah. very like don't rest your head or something like that yeah um and then you know on the other hand you have stuff like Delta Green or stuff like which is just all setting and it's just, well you're kind of on the on the spectrum closer to Delta Green yeah no there. I know yeah um but it it's even if you're not doing your own game or whatever you still need to do research to, to make it plausible at least to the players for your own group like uh i mean i do research all the time for even just for the games i run for rppr like uh it's a skill that you need as a game master so like uh i was running clips phase recently and uh kale was in the game and the game i set on series which is uh, a dwarf planet in the main belt uh, uh, around Mars, it's 950 kilometers in diameter, and it, there's a one-page descript, two pages of it in RimWorld where there's hidden concern: octopus gangsters control the planet, and that's it. They don't describe the hierarchy of the hidden concern. They don't. They they give a little like, oh, they control the ice mining and the other shit on yeah. there, and they they're up to something mysterious uh, at the bottom of the planet, <laughs> which is the last paragraph of every eclipse. Yeah, yeah. Description. They're up to, yeah, <laughs> they're literally up to something is. mysterious. Yeah, we've gotten reports that. They're up to seven. They're no good. Like uh, we well, don't we know. We don't really know. <laughs> so I had to come up with what that is. I also had to come up with uh, more about their hierarchy. I had to come up with the names. I also had to like research like series. It's ice on the surface. Then there's an ocean, and then there's a rocky like, and it's a super high pressure ocean. So I had to figure like, sort of conceptualize what it was like going to like being there, how they socialize, all this other stuff, and like how much gravity's on the planet, how far is it away from. Uh, Oberon. So, how far is it away from Titan? Because there takes some yeah. to take a ship there, and all this other shit. And that's just for an adventure in an established game setting. Yes, you know? uh, because they didn't do a lot of research on there. And, uh, and but the players, I think you guys like that. Yeah, because, we yeah, did. We enjoyed it very much uh, because it made it real. Because if I just kind of winged it, it would be like it's generic space planet, you know. It, but now it's like. We go in there. Oh shit! We, we have these different. We're underwater, and there's all these other. It's high pressure. If we go out, and if the habitat breaks, we're just going to be crushed by the pressure. Even yeah. though we have these mods, blah blah blah. So, um, research is a vital skill if you're wanting to run, even just running games. Yeah, talking but, broad strokes. I mean, like in creative writing, it's called verisimilitude, which yeah. is not being real, but the appearance of being real. Yeah, that you can maintain. And, like, that depends on the type of game you're running. So, like, Eclipse Phase is very detailed. Yeah. It's very detail-oriented, so you need a lot of that. And, yeah. And whereas I am typically more narrativist in my leanings in games, like, it's going to be a narrative about economies, which is materially based. Yeah. And if I'm going to run a game based on materialism in part, it's got to, like, have the impression of being realistic. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, that's the one thing people think of when it's an epic novel. It's like, people think of it, that's real, like, as an inescapable. Um, like, and, and so, like, you've got to kind of build that up. Uh, and, yeah, so I think it depends on what the game you want to do. Like, I wouldn't research a fiasco playset yeah. very deeply. Uh, I mean, unless you're into... But well, I, like, well, yeah, with Fiasco, you could do with like if you had one interesting twist or novel idea, which could be a single article from something like, hey, I read about uh, pirate miners under this Johannesburg. They, yeah. They're mining illegally. Done. That's a set. Exactly. Yeah. And like and that's the enough research. But yeah. like 
there's a difference between doing research that is functional for the game, like which is significant detail in the creative writing idea, yeah. and then there's fetishistic research. Yeah. Like, and the thing is, like, uh, people like Glancy and Height. I don't think they're necessarily fetishistic. I think they just know so much about history. That is what necessary for them to enjoy a game. Like, yeah. If I say the character looks at a watch, Glancy's going to know what watch made by whom, <laughs> how much it cost in the currency of the time, what exchange rate you could get on the black market. Like, because he's just knows well, that also, much about well, that the, stuff. The, like, the, the thing, though, is it, it actually is important to know it sometimes because there, even though I did a lot of research for the series games, there were things that I didn't know off the top of my head and I wish I had. I yeah. had thought of, like, there's one angle where you're you're trying to trick the, a group of people who had a remote off-site base, and I didn't know how far away the base was exactly. I knew approximately, so I didn't know exactly how long it would take a message to get back and forth because it was over a light yeah, second. Yeah. So uh, I knew that much, but other than that I didn't know uh, so I I made a luck roll at the end of it um, but uh, and so that black wa- that watch like hey if you want to sell it on the black market uh, then that might come up which is a thing a player might do I'm trying to bribe the guard with the watch you know is the guard going to believe is guard going to think that's a valuable watch um, so it's 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 very tricky because no matter how much you research there's a, it's it it all boils down to is it something you know when a player comes up with a question about it yeah and you never know what the players are going to fucking ask. But then, like, occasionally you'll find a gym that, yeah. like, completely redefines the game. Like, I remember Dangers of Fratization. I didn't have the idea until I looked up the cigarette scam. Like, yeah. But the idea that in post-World War II, you could go to the PX, buy a carton of cigarettes, trade it to a German guy who would then give you, like, a priceless painting because he would just use it as firewood. And then the German guy would take the cigarettes because the cigarettes were the only currency that mattered and then buy food for his family. And so that's how you turn a carton of cigarettes into a $700 profit when you ship it back home. Like, just the interplay of all that shit was just, it made the whole game for me, just reading that two paragraphs in a history book. Um, So sometimes you'll just, like, it's not just work. Sometimes you're just like, hell yeah, I found a you know a thing that's unlocked the whole scenario for. That is one thing that yeah, it's kind of like um, you study movie production, you study movie, you you look at movies differently. And so like with game now, when you start designing games, you look at life. Everything becomes <laughs> like I could t- that's gaming fodder right there. I could do that. You know, you just at the grocery store it's like, wait a minute, this is ah golden. You know, I'll I'll turn it into a dungeon crawl with orcs. You know, or something like <laughs> yeah. that. Um, or bookstore or wherever else or movies, you know? And, um, so that's the thing is, yeah, you look at everything as potential use in some game. Um, so yeah. Well, yeah. So we're, we're talking about research in general and, you know, just to recap things I've learned, uh, (laughs) retrospectively, even though I'm still in the process, um, find people to help you. Yeah. It's much better to have somebody who's done it before who can point you to like four or five really good researches to just randomly type keywords into Google and help you find. And now that there's the internet and, you know, uh, you can contact people before. Make networks, you know, yeah, things like that as much as you possibly can. Um, I'm not as prepared as I could be, but that's always going to be true. Yeah. Um, So, like, do your best, but don't not write anything for 20 years because you don't know everything. And then eventually people are going to say, why don't you just do it in blank? Like, and uh, you need to entertain that question a lot at first, but eventually you need to have done enough research that you could say, because I don't want to. Like, or that's not. Yeah, you have to answer that question. Because sometimes it is. You do need to answer the question. You shouldn't dismiss it entirely. Yeah. But like, just because you've done enough research and you've decided, 
I don't really think there's a game out there that does what I want to do yeah. specifically in this. And I think I have to that point. I mean, maybe it's, I'm going to like run into like puce markets or something yeah. and just be like, fuck. Well, the, uh, and, but, well there is one other, the counterman's don't get so like, because you run a lot of games in Pathfinder or Call of Cthulhu or whatever your favorite system, don't try and feel like you have to shoehorn in your idea into a system. If it's not going to be a good fit, like, I would not recommend trying to do this in Pathfinder, for example, like, uh, or, and you mentioned Gumshoe, even though you like Gumshoe. So like you have to, if you feel like your idea is different enough to merit a new system, be brave enough to make that decision. I'm going to write a new system instead of, you know, read as much as you can to make sure that you be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, when people keep saying it after you've done that, you got to learn to say, cause I don't want (laughs) to. Yeah. Um, which is what I'm, what I'm, I'm quickly learning. Yeah, um, and that is one one strength in being so hobby deficit. In that, like, uh, while I have not read a ton of games, I'm not too married to like putting a specific mechanic into Red Market from a game I've been playing for a long time. Right. Um, I mean, like, one of the benefits of being so new to the hobby is that I'm, I can say D20 Y. Yeah. Why? <laughs> now that I, I made you suffer through it. Uh, yeah. yeah, and I just why uh, <laughs> like. You know, I get that people survived on millet for many years, yeah. but I wouldn't want to go order it at a restaurant Artec, now. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. Um, that's the kind of stuff. So, like, uh, you, you can turn your weaknesses into strengths if you just are dedicated. About yeah. It. I hope, if I finish this. <laughs> you will. Ever. You will. Because <laughs> uh, I'm an optimist. So, um, yeah. so anyways, uh, what's next for game designer? Uh, um, I think we'll need to start playing with mechanics. Um, we may do, uh, we have a lot of interviews still yeah, from yeah. Gen Con to bring out. Um, I'd I'll like, I'd those. like to interview like Ken Height or Scott Glancy about this. Cause I remember Ken Height said on, he went on a Twitter rant about like, if you're a modern game designer and you don't use all the research materials available on the internet, I don't know why you're even trying. Like, <laughs> it was just an angry fish shaking old rant. Uh, I'd like to hear him talk about this topic. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it'll probably be mechanics. And I have some ideas, no idea if they'll work. I don't know if yeah. I should write setting material and then mechanics or vice versa. And I'm also writing like two books other than this right now. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, to be honest, uh, and just a little note the reason why there hasn't been a whole lot of Gen Con material posted yet is because I've been fucking obsessed with Base Raiders. But now that's literally. Obsessed. Uh, it's not. I want to make it good. I want to make it pretty for the. I understand, stackers. but Sarah and I around the house now, yeah. when we are trying to say we're not going to do things, yeah. now just say Base Raiders. <laughs> <laughs> it's become our code. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> like, you can take out the trash. Uh, base Raiders. <laughs> well, I'm glad I could be a part of your lives for that. So, uh, all right. Well, uh, this has been Game Designer Workshop to Research. Yes. Uh, this is Ross Payton with here with Caleb, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye.